you're listening to Divorce Happy Hour with your host, Christina Previtt. And John Nocklinger. We're two divorce lawyers from New Jersey here to talk about love, life, and divorce. Whether you're thinking about divorce, going through one now, or been there, done that, or if you're just a divorce lawyer, this show is for you. To learn more about us and our law firm, you can find us at centraljerseyfamilylaw.com. You can also find us on social media. Just search for NJ Divorce Solutions on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Let us know if you like the show or hate the show and what topics you'd like us to cover in the future. Please keep in mind that this show is for informational purposes only. It's not intended to take the place of legal advice. If you need legal advice, please call New Jersey Divorce Solutions at 732-384-1550 and mention this program for a free consultation. Welcome back. Today, our guest is Karina Lucid. She is a bankruptcy attorney. She deals with all types of bankruptcy matters from individuals and corporate bankruptcies. She also does mediation and collaborative cases. Thank you for being here, Karina. Hi, John. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, Christina. It's a pleasure. Well, we are so excited to hear about bankruptcy today. Oh, good. (laughs) Very exciting topic. Well, it is. It's a topic that probably more people need to know about than they even think than people think they need to know. Yes. I think there are a lot of misconceptions about bankruptcy. Well, we're going to clear up a lot of them today. That sounds great. (laughs) It's a great public service, honestly. But first. (laughs) Yeah, but first we're going to talk about a couple um, news uh, articles that we found that we think weren't some discussion. So I found this article about 10 everyday ways to foster a healthy body image in your child. And I thought these were really good things. I wanted to go over these things with you because I know, Karina, you have children. Um, And I thought we could go through some of these and see what you guys think. The first thing is to banish negative body talk. I think that's a big one. Yeah. Um, I think that's a huge challenge, though, because you can banish it at home um, and – as much as you want to focus on positive body image and positive body talk, there's talk at uh, you know at school. There's talk when they're outside with friends and and media and you know how much do you control what's on the TV and what the shows say. It's really challenging. So I kind of feel like rather than banning it, you should mitigate it by explaining it. That's not that's not a bad idea. Yeah, that sounds even better. Well, the one thing you can do is number two: stop criticizing your own body. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think as a role model, I think your kids look to you more as the role model, right? They get the influences from Instagram and all of that, but they're looking to you as the parent, as the role model. And I know I say things to myself like, oh, you look fat today or whatever, you know, like, you know, I'm having a bad hair day. But I I have a goddaughter who happens to be Sean's daughter, and I would never say those things to her would never tell her that, and I wouldn't want her to hear me say that. Wait, do you just, like, look at yourself in the mirror and say those things to yourself, or is this all inside (laughs) your head? Yeah, I put on my jeans, and when that button won't button, I'm like, oh, God, you're so fat. You need to go to the gym. Why did I have those cookies last night? Yes, why did I I drink those Cosmos last night? (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah. No, that is a real challenge, but I think that that's super important, and no matter what you say or think when you look in the mirror, what you say about yourself in front of your child, and I think especially, you know, like, I have have an almost adolescent daughter, and, you know, um, I know I have to watch what I say about me in front of her because it does get internalized, and as much as I tell her, you know, that she's beautiful and love her the way she is and everything else, if I'm talking bad about myself, it 
you can you can see it. You can see the way it reflects on her. Well, yeah, because then she thinks that that's how she should be, too. Mm-hmm. So the next two things kind of go together. Share positive body messages and emphasize other values. So, you know, emphasize intelligence and all the other things other than just things about your body. And, you know, all the bad things they hear about in out in the world on social media and on TV and in Instagram and all these other places. Try to f- tell the things that are great about their body, I guess. So if, yeah. you know. Someone has someone has certain curves to their body, shall we say? Emphasize and say those are wonderful. Those are a great thing. Yeah. Shouldn't be upset about those. Yeah, I think that we should emphasize more that there's all different kinds of body types. You know, there's some people that would love to have a lot of curves and they just don't. And then there's people that have a ton of curves, but and they want to have the ballerina's body. And to some degree, you can't really control that. So you shouldn't feel like you're inadequate just because you don't have whatever is in style. Yeah. Remember, bef- bef- Jennifer Lopez was the one that brought big butts into style. Thank God. And then for Kim J-Lo. Kardashian made them. Well, no, no, <laughs> Kim Kardashian, like that's a whole different. She created a dress line just for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I really think you know. I think the the key is to emphasize the other things that are important. Um, you know, like having a healthy body and like, you know, um, challenging yourself to be your best self and, you know, your your education and, you know, your body type is not, you know, where the focus of your image and reflection on yourself should be. And I, I know at least that's what I try to do with my daughter is, you know, as long as she's got a healthy body, you know, that's all that matters. Absolutely. Another thing here is model healthy behaviors, and what they are talking about in this article is that if you you have a child who maybe is a little overweight, shall we say, just sitting there and criticizing the way they're eating and their sedentary um, lifestyle (laughs) isn't going to be productive, that you really need to help them see this – you know, to go out – Side, maybe take them out walking with you, take them doing things with you, and really model that healthy behavior. They need to see you doing it, I guess, is the way you need to look at it. And don't just go upstairs and tuck yourself in bed with five Girl Scout cookies. Are we talking about you? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, no one's watching me, but yeah. I wouldn't want my daughter to see me do that and go, oh, well, if you're feeling sad today, you should just go to bed with five boxes of Girl Scout cookies. (laughs) But on on the other hand, though, you know, I don't hide from my daughter the fact that I like a glass of red wine and a little bowl of animal crackers with a book before bed. You know, and I know that's not the healthiest habit, but that's my wind down habit. And in exchange, in the morning, I work out. And that's how I keep my body healthy, by having balance. And, you know, she needs to know that, too. Yeah, but that's not bad. I mean, I don't think that we should teach people to never indulge because that is unrealistic. And then you you have the body shaming, the self-body shaming after you eat something, right? Like if you eat a box of Girl Scout cookies, you, you might beat yourself up afterwards. And look, it happens. And, you know, I've been told from friends and it happens. What What are you going to do? I mean, as long as you're developing good habits, you don't want to teach your kids to feel ashamed when they when they do something like that. Right. Right. And what you were just talking about is the next thing on this list, which is to show your children how exercise is great for keeping your body flexible and strong and not just to keep you not bigger than you want to be. Right. That there's other benefits to it. Um, I just had a uh, a health inspection, shall we say, the other day, and a uh, person asked me, do you run a lot? I was like, no. 
by using an elliptical machine all the time. She's like, well, your pulse is like really, really good. Uh, based on, you know, the fact that you're not as thin as maybe you should be. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't say that. I'm putting that in her mouth. I think you look great. Well, thank you. That's the beauty of the radio. No one that's listening is going to know. <laughs> We're all gorgeous. If you would like to private message me, I'll send you a picture of John. <laughs> and I'll send you a picture of Christina. Or her avatar, maybe. <laughs> yes, my avatar. <laughs> um, next thing on this list is to call out others whenever they talk in an inappropriate way around your children because we all have people in our house that come in uh you know girlfriends even guys who come in and they'll start complaining about themselves and complain about why well, i can't eat that because i need to lose weight i can't eat and you know i shouldn't be doing that because i want to lose weight and your kids are going to hear this mm-hmm. and so they're saying you really need to call out even your friends when they say things in front of your children so that they nothing gets through to them without you intercepting it and filtering it a little bit i feel yeah. like there's yeah. plenty more things that we should be filtering well yeah, yeah. We don't have enough time to talk about that. No, but I will say uh, one thing that I have found works amazingly well with my daughter is I always make a point of reminding her that other people's stuff is not her stuff. That's great. You know, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Their baggage isn't her baggage. That's right. And the last two things on the list, one we already talked about, be mindful of the media. Well, we sort of talked about, you know, social media, real media. Just be really mindful of that. Pay attention to what your children are consuming. And finally, promote diversity. Everyone looks different. There's not a right way to look, not a wrong way to look. Everyone looks different, and you should appreciate it. And that's our public service announcement for the day. Well, I don't think enough parents think about these things. They forget your children are hearing all the stuff out in the world. Even if you don't do it at home, they're he- you're hearing it out in the world, and you still have to help them, even if you're not doing it yourself. Well, you have to model it. I mean, yeah. you can't say to your daughter, now, you know, don't think bad thoughts about your body, even if you eat Girl Scout cookies. But then go and, you know, say, oh, God, I'm so fat. I, you know, I hate this outfit or whatever. You can't say that, and she's hearing you. But then meanwhile, you're telling her something completely different. Right. 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 Because consistent. they will model more what they see you do and hear you do than listen to what you say. There's no question about it. Most definitely. So moving on to the next article, I'm very interested to hear your opinion on this, Karina, since you have children. There's an opinion piece in The New York Times that talks about parenting in the time of measles. And I how, just want to know, why don't you want to hear about it from me? What? Why do you just want to hear about well, it from Car- her? Karina's our guest today. I hear from you all the time. Okay, because I want to say I don't, <laughs> I don't have children, but I, I can still opine about some of these things. I have a goddaughter. Oh, oh you definitely will opine on this. <laughs> I'll, would you like me to start with you on this article? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so parenting in the time of measles. So most uh, – a lot of children are being homeschooled. More, I think more children are being homeschooled now than they have been in a long time because of the school shootings and all the things that are going on in the world. A lot of parents are really concerned about that. And I know a lot of people personally who are from the millennial generation who are homeschooling their children. And it's really – I always thought that we were moving towards that model where almost everyone had two parents working. And kids were going to school. But I've seen more and more – uh, more and more time now where the kids are being homeschooled. And I know a lot of people who are homeschooling their kids and they're not getting the vaccinations that are required for kids to go to public school. And now we've got measles outbreaks again. Wow. So, yeah. Christina, 
What is your opinion on people not vaccinating their kids? Well, you you and I talked about this briefly earlier today. And I have to say, when I hear that someone is not vaccinating their kids, I'm really flabbergasted by that. I can't understand why would you not take advantage of modern medicine? It's like, have we gone back to the dark ages? I mean, people don't need to die from measles. So why why are we even talking about this? And I will be very honest, when I hear that someone is not vaccinating their children, I hope I don't offend anybody I know, but I, I kind of think they're a little crazy. I, really, I think to myself, what is wrong with these people? Like, I really don't understand it. So I hope to so, God, Karina, no, no, you're not so, one of those people. So, so actually, this is really, really great topic, um, especially kind of where I'm coming from on it, because I really didn't have an opinion on vaccinations before I had my daughter. But I learned a lot of things about the dangers of vaccinations while I was pregnant and, and stuff like that. And and I got kind of nervous about vaccinations and I wasn't sure that I wanted her to have all of them. And, you know, there was a lot of possible negative consequences. Um, and, you know, I and, and there was, you know, a lot of studies that link uh, the possibility of autism being linked to vaccinations and stuff. And I was actually kind of scared. And I ended up having all the vaccinations because she had to be in daycare from six months old. So I, you know, it's just like, well, okay, I, I, I kind of, I had, but I had a, um, what do they call it? A, um, there's a, there's a, it's a medical thing, like a something choice uh, where you, you kind of have like two evils that you have to choose from and you just kind of have to make uh, whatever your best educated choice. I made the choice to do the vaccinations, but when I see people that choose not to do the vaccinations, I do understand why, because I was there. I was struggling with those fears. Um, so it's a very it's a very complex and very delicate subject. It really is. And I don't know what's right or wrong. I just know what I chose for my kid because of my circumstances. But it's tricky. No, I think that's good. The problem that I have is that if your child is not vaccinated against something like measles, you can spread the disease because even if someone's vaccinated, there's still I think there's still a, a possibility of you getting the disease. Now, I was just thinking of this article talks about, you know, someone homeschools their kid. They're not vaccinating because actually I should have said that some people homeschool so that they don't have to vaccinate their kids, too. It's not just the other. Reasons. Well, I can do better than that. I know someone who who made fraudulent documents to verify. I say that with air quotes because I love air quotes. To show that their children were vaccinated and they weren't. It's unfortunate that you could not actually see the look of shock on my face right now. I wonder (laughs) if there are other people doing that. I'm sure there are. Well, there's people paying to get their kids into college. (laughs) That's true. We should check their vaccination (laughs) records, too. Yeah. We've been talking about that on the show for a couple of weeks. We're going to give that a break. Wait wait and see what happens when they actually start plea bargaining, because I have a feeling they're going to start plea bargaining soon. At sure. least I would assume so. I don't think any of them are going to take a chance of seeing what happens. They're probably researching who they have to pay off to get out of this. Yeah. Well, well they're, you know, they're good at that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what, the one thing that kind of amazes me more than anything else is sometimes, you know, as an attorney, we, we it sometimes shocks the conscience, the things that you hear your client say that they did that they didn't think was wrong. <laughs> and I think these are great examples. <laughs> I'm like, Really? What were you thinking? You know, this is one of those. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, no, I mean, they how could they not know that that was wrong? There's just certain basic things, right? First of all, if it has to be done in secrecy, there's a pretty good chance it's wrong. My mom used to always say that. If you don't, you know, if you can't do it in front of your parents, it's probably wrong. If you want, <laughs> but this was, you know, she, she had a tight rein. But <laughs> if, if you would think there is a lot of, of realistic logic to that in, in something, you know, if you can't do it out in the open, if you can't tell people you did it. Yeah, there's probably a there's probably a very real problem you're not addressing. <laughs> yeah, I think we kind of know, right? Well, I we think know. these yeah. I think these people are probably going to take the approach of I just paid money. I didn't know what he was going to do. Is someone with the money. saying that, or is this just speculation? It's speculation based on that's probably one of the only defenses that would work against these particular crimes, according to some of the legal experts I've heard on various shows. That this is really. They would have to not know that this was happening because otherwise they did commit fraud. If they knew I'm giving this money and I know what's going to happen with the money, there's really so there's no an intent. He just, he just went down the rabbit hole. He went back to the whole the whole money for school thing. We're we're still talking about the fraudulent oh. vaccination. Forms. Oh my god, it's still good. <laughs> well, they're both the. But well, you know what? It's both. Yeah, the same. actually, I think there's some overlap. It's there. both the same though. It's it it's is. people doing things that are completely, completely inappropriate. But going back to the vaccines, what I was going to say though is. What happens when your kid gets sick? You have to take them to the pediatrician with all the kids who did have their vaccinations. Right. So this is kind of to me this is really I get it that you don't that some parents don't want to vaccinate their kids, but it's kind of along the lines of I don't care what you do in your own house as long as it doesn't impact somebody else. Right. Like you can you can drink and get drunk and pass out on your couch, but the second you get behind the wheel of your car and you go out in the world and you can kill people, well, then your actions have now have consequences. And I think that's really – this article, it's called Parenting Time in the Time of Measles um, in the New York Times. That's really what she's talking about is that parents, they have good intentions, but there's unintended consequences of what they're doing to other people. Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't doubt that the parents who aren't getting the vaccinations, I'm sure they love their kids and they do think that that is the best decision for them. But it's – I feel that it's just a really uneducated decision. I mean, why would you not listen to the doctors? I, I guess where is this information coming from that says that you shouldn't vaccinate them? Who is that coming well, from? I don't really know. There's studies. <laughs> there's there's, there's studies. a lot of studies that, that they talk about very scary potential negative consequences of, of vaccinations. Um, but that said, there is also, you know, that reality, you're taking your kid to the pediatrician, right? And it is a germ fest and your kid's not vaccinated. So, I mean, even taking it beyond, because I think the kids that are vaccinated are so much less likely to get sick. It's really the unvaccinated kids that are being put at such a higher risk because there's all these, there's they're now at a much higher potential risk because there's all these low level germs that they're not protected from all these and these diseases are very serious and you know so so you know yes it can it can mushroom into a bigger problem but even just at that nuclear level that kid is so much more at risk in today's society that's the scarier part for me at that at, at the beginning of it you know? well it's funny you said that because where i go in my head as an attorney is okay so you decide not to vaccinate your child your child gets a disease that could have been prevented by vaccination, and your child has now died. Is that negligent homicide? Or are you that... responsible? Well, just imagine the parent guilt. Do you think they would question that decision if the child died? 
Or do you think they would still feel like they had made the right decision? I don't know. I mean, I've read all the studies, Karina, that you've read. And, um, you know, there used to be studies that smoking was good for you, too. I mean, right. like, there's always going to be some studies. And I think there, it's to be determined because there could be other things that are going on in the world, too. Well, but, just because there was you know. a study on it doesn't mean that it was a reliable study. Well, they used to say that sugar was good for you, too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know. I mean, yeah. it could have been <laughs> done by the National Enquirer. Would you rely on that study? <laughs> but, they also but, think, say there are aliens but and no. that Elvis is alive. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but those aren't the sources, and that's yeah. the problem. Yeah. That if those were the sources, then I don't think we would have this issue, right? What the, the problem is, and and this is going into the whole big, you know, the 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 sphere of political influence and stuff. You get lobbyists working for companies that have you know vested interests, and they're getting legislation passed, they're getting you know um, you know news reports issued, et cetera, that that you know control our information and. Those are the sources that are real, you know, um, very legitimate sources giving us information that, you know, there, there, there isn't a clear right or wrong. There is gray area. And so it depends on how you manipulate that gray and how you present it and who presents it most convincingly in what forum. And that's why it's so tricky. It's, it's just really tricky. That's great. No, <laughs> I, I think that's so true. Everything you just said, I so agree with. So let's move on to bankruptcy, shall we? Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> yes, a much easier topic. <laughs> yeah, sure. So let's, let's let's get everyone's credit score up above a seven twenty by the end of this show. Ooh! Ooh. <laughs> really? <laughs> it can happen that fast? <laughs> no. <laughs> no Don't least, pill yourself. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's move fast. Talk fast, Karina. Okay, so we wanted to have Karina on and talk about bankruptcy, largely because there is such an incredible stigma associated with bankruptcy. And I think there are a lot of misconceptions about what bankruptcy is, who is a good candidate for a bankruptcy, and, you know, how quickly and how you can recover from a bankruptcy. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. First of all, how do you help clients when they do come to you inquiring about a bankruptcy? Do you have a conversation with them to make them feel a little better about the stigma? Is that something that comes up a lot? Yeah. Yeah, actually. So there's there's a couple of layers to that. First of all, I have to tell you, I have a lot of clients that come to my office and say, bankruptcy is not an option. I'm here to find out how to avoid it. And so, you know, I oftentimes start the conversation from, okay, this is everything else that you can do. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll first find out about their financial circumstances. And then, you know, this is everything else that you can do to avoid bankruptcy. And then I'll explain to them, I'll say nine times out of 10, I'll end up explaining to them why bankruptcy is really a better option and is going to get them, you know, financially rehabilitated much faster and is going to get them, you know, relief from all of the stress and burdens that they're trying to get rid of. You know, um, so so that's where, you know, the conversation really kind of starts with wherever they are. And, you know, then I, I look at their financial circumstances and if they're, you know, if they come in saying, you know, I want to file for bankruptcy and, you know, I've done a lot of research and I know exactly what kind of bankruptcy and everything, then I, I actually start with that information that they have. And then I just, you know, I, I 
sort of drill it down with them. And if it turns out that they came in with the right idea in mind, you know, great, we go down that path. If it turns out that they didn't, they have a full explanation of, you know, what the right path is and why. So they don't leave thinking that they just got kind of pushed into something. They don't leave feeling uncomfortable or, you know, like the the, the, the lifting of the stigma really comes with first starting with an education of, you know, how how we can help them to get out of a very bad, stressful situation. Well, there, I think part of the stigma is that there's, I think there's a consensus that bankruptcy follows you for seven to 10 years. So that basically, if you file bankruptcy, you are not going to be able to buy a house or have a good life or and you're always going to have a scarlet letter on your forehead for seven to 10 years. Right. Is that really true? So um, that's that's true and not true. So it does follow you for 10 years, actually. Um, it's actually where the 7 to 10 years comes in is that prior to 2005, you could only get a bankruptcy discharge once every seven years. Now that's actually once every eight years, but it stays on your credit report for 10 years. However, that's not really the relevant part of the analysis because what happens is once you file for bankruptcy, the credit agencies and all of those who would be extending credit to you, the lenders, they put you in a bucket with separate from people who have not filed for bankruptcy. And they, they look at you compared to other people who have filed for bankruptcy. And if you start rehabilitating your credit, you will become very credit worthy and very attractive to them. Quite quickly, actually. And usually we use the benchmark that the mortgage companies use because obviously, you know, I mean, that that's the safest benchmark and that's two years. And so, you know, with people who get um, a, who are fortunate enough to qualify for a Chapter 7 and get complete relief from their debts, um, they just have to stay credit worthy for that time. And, you know, maybe, you know, we recommend getting a secured credit card or, you know, some other tips and tricks that we can do. Like if they're renting, they can ask their their landlord to make sure that they're reporting to the credit um, the credit agencies that they are paying their rent on time or they can get a leased vehicle or, you know, whatever, making car payments helps to rebuild your credit. Um, so that's one thing. And then if you're in a Chapter 13, it's even easier because a Chapter 13 has a repayment plan built into it. And if you just stay on plan, as we say, which means making your monthly payments on time, within two years, your credit score is going to be over a 720, and it is going to be worthy of getting a new mortgage. And that's really what counts in the analysis, not that it stays on for 10 years. Wow. I did not know that. So what makes someone a good candidate for bankruptcy? Well, um, it depends on the kind of bankruptcy. So first, I'll say um, somebody who would be a good candidate for a Chapter 7. Somebody who has, I use $20,000 of unsecured debt as the benchmark because I want the cost-benefit analysis to be sufficient. If it's less than $20,000 of total unsecured debt, I will usually recommend that we do some kind of out-of-court workout, not at the gym. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> so you mean negotiate with the creditors? Yes. 
Yes, because they're usually, in that case, they would be few enough that it would be feasible. It would be low enough dollar amounts that we could probably get settlements that the person could pay off. Um, so, so it has to be enough to justify paying for the process and going through the whole process, right? So I usually use 20000 as the benchmark. Um, the other thing is, you know, um, do they qualify from an income perspective? So um, with uh, the bankruptcy code changes in 2005, there was an implementation of what's called the means test. And through the means test, they compare you to other people in your state. And if your income is higher than the median income in your state, you're going to presumptively not qualify for a Chapter 7. Okay, um, and I say presumptively because there are ways that you could qualify for certain deductions to bring your income down under the median, but presumptively you wouldn't qualify. And the median income guidelines are available to us on the web. The U.S. Trustees website has it all there, so anybody can look it up. But, you know, generally speaking, in the state of New Jersey, consider this, that a family of five making under $108,000 a year right now is below median. So... You know, that's how high the standard of living, the cost of living in New Jersey is. So that's it. Those are those are the two things. And then we also have to look at, you know, are you risking losing anything that you need to keep, like your home? If your home is worth five hundred thousand dollars or three hundred thousand dollars, and you know, let's just say it's it's three hundred thousand dollars, but you only have a hundred thousand dollar mortgage. There's a lot of equity there. So if you filed a Chapter Seven, your trustee would say, well. That's unfair to your creditors for you to get debt forgiveness because you have all this equity in your house. So they would sell your house to pay your creditors. And, of course, we don't want that. So um, if you have little enough equity in your home or if you're a renter and you don't otherwise have assets that would be exposed to the reach of creditors, you know, and you have enough debt and you have a low enough income and you fit into that criteria for Chapter 7, I'm always going to recommend that because it is the best breath of relief for the lowest money and the fastest time. You know, I mean, you're in and out of the process if you haven't done anything wrong and we don't have litigation, you know, um, you're in and out of the process in four months. And, you know, it's definitely the least expensive uh, of, of all the options. If you don't qualify for a 7, then we probably would talk about a 13. Um, in a 13, there's no, you know, you're, you still have to look at the median income because that how much over the median income you are is going to determine how much you have to repay creditors over time. But it gives you time to repay them. It gives you a manageable payment plan. It stops interest. It stops harassing phone calls and all that other stuff. So, um, you know, the other thing is if you have if you have too much secured debt and you have, you know, uh, you, you get end up getting boxed out of uh, or, or too much unsecured debt and you don't qualify for a 13, um, then, you know, we, we do also talk about the individual 11, which, believe it or not, especially because my office is in Somerset County and, you know, I have a lot of high asset clients and they have, you know, they own multiple properties or, or they, you know, they have multiple mortgages um, or they just have a very big mortgage, you know. Um, then in those situations, we may have to actually look at a Chapter 11 for them, which is more expensive and more complicated, but still, you know, um, with the relief that you can get from the process, oftentimes it, it is the best option. What is a Chapter 11? So a Chapter 11 is a more complex kind of reorganization than a 13. Okay. I'll just leave it at that. So it now. requires <laughs> a payment plan. You have to pay back some of the debt. So um, 
Yeah, maybe I shouldn't have said it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Chapter 11 generally referred to as a reorganization. Yes. I feel like I've heard that. Yeah. Yes, you're absolutely right. The only reason that the caveat to that is a a Chapter 11 can also be used for what we call an orderly liquidation. So if for some reason, um, let's say like this particularly happens with people who have their own businesses and have, you know, a lot of personal guarantees tied up with the business debt. Um, and the, what they may do is sell off assets through a Chapter 11 and in exchange for getting those, you know, the repayment of the liquidation process at what's a higher and better offer than a fire sale, which would be just turning it over to a Chapter 7 trustee. Um, in exchange, they will often get releases from the creditors so that, you know, they, they don't end up with uh, a personal liability or the, or maybe the business can survive and continue depending on how they do it. That is very interesting. So, but but most individuals wouldn't do a Chapter Eleven, right? I mean, that's no, not a typical. Most, yeah, mo- okay. most of us don't have enough debt. Um, <laughs> thank God. That's good. <laughs> that's good. You mentioned earlier that there are s- some some savings or some assets that are not able to be reached by creditors. Can you give some examples? Yeah. So um, really important things, like especially if you're in a financial crisis and you have a 401k and you can access it and get loans and you get tempted to repay some of your debt by doing 401k loans um, or just, you know, withdrawing from your 401k plan, don't do that. Um, There's two reasons. First of all, your 401k is a completely 100% protected asset. Your creditors cannot reach it it at all. Um, And so there's no reason to tap into it until you've already gotten relief from the debt, and then you can use it to rebuild your life. Um, And the other thing is, if you actually take early withdrawals from your 401k, you're creating a tax liability. And I I can't even tell you how often it breaks my heart. You see people come in and they have used up their 401k assets to try to manage their debt. And on top of it, they've now created tax liabilities that are non-dischargeable. So they go from having a completely protected exempt asset Mm -hmm. to added liabilities that are not dischargeable on top of everything. What are other examples of things not dischargeable? I know the government, basically. Anything that the government (laughs) would be involved in, naturally. So taxes... Uh, I know student loans. Um, anything else other than yeah? So, um, so there are exceptions to those two as well. So, um, income taxes that are that have been assessed more than three years prior to the bankruptcy being filed can be dischargeable. So that that's oh. sort of a, a narrower exception. Um, and so you can get one over on the government. <laughs> You can. She's like, that's a little exception, just a little one. I don't care how narrow that opening in the window is. I'm jumping through it. Um, But and then with student loan debt, also there are exceptions to the rule. Um, You know, it's 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 a lot harder to get a discharge on a student loan debt, but you can get a hardship discharge. There are you know certain mechanisms to get debt forgiveness. but again, they're, they're narrow exceptions. The, and the other things that are not dischargeable are things, um, you know, like, um, uh, let's see, um, in a Chapter 7, equitable distribution is not dischargeable. So in um, a, equitable distribution as part of a divorce proceeding. Yes. But is um, it in Chapter 13? Yes. <gasps> what? <laughs> 
That is scandalous. So so before I explain that, I'm just going to just give you kind of like a couple of other things that are non-dischargeable. Any like judgment that was um, obtained by your creditor because you, you defrauded them, anything that has fraud as a basis for the judgment or willful and malicious harm to another person, um, you know, if, if it's a domestic violence claim or something like that. Um, and, you know, you know, um, um, I, I always love to talk about Tevis claims. I know for you guys, that's kind of a, uh, a jurisdictional issue. But for us, it's also we look at, you know, sort of the foundation of the Tevis claim because there was, um, I, if I recall correctly, that that had um, that was one of the cases where there was like a, um, oh, oh, it was a it was, it was a willful and malicious injury thing. They, there was a, an illness at the basis of the of the allegations. Right. Wasn't that one of that was like an STD contracted or, or I I'm not sure of- what you're referring to. And just for our listeners, a Tevis claim is when incident to a divorce proceeding, a spouse actually makes a claim in the um, context of the divorce proceeding that the other spouse basically committed some act of personal injury and they can they can collect damages if they prevail. Right. So if you have that personal injury claim and it is a claim that resulted from some kind of, you know, willful and malicious act. Um, like an assault you know, or like something like that. Like an assault, that. yeah. Or, um, you know, or if you were out – I'm sorry. I, I love the, the STD example. If you went out and contracted an STD and knowingly had sexual relations with your spouse and gave them the STD and they have a claim – <clears throat> I think that, that was a, a herpes case. That is a, no, that's a non-dischargeable yeah. claim. Um, so, but you have to make sure that you either have a judgment for that already when you're in the bankruptcy, or if the bankruptcy is filed before you have that judgment, you have to make sure you bring that action into the bankruptcy case as what we call an adversary proceeding, which is a separate piece of litigation to determine liability on a specific claim within the bankruptcy. Well, hopefully our listeners are, whoever this may affect, are in the minority. (laughs) There's not too many of you out there. Well, what about in a divorce sometimes there is a counsel fee obligation from one spouse to the other. Is that dischargeable? So it depends. Um, And and so this – if if that counsel fee award is in lieu of alimony or other support, then it's actually – uh, an award to the spouse, not to counsel. And so by because of that, it is non-dischargeable, just like alimony or support would be if it was in, in its purest form, right? Um, and, and so that's where you also get into the trickiness of if those counsel fees um, are, you know, like if they're part of the pendente lite award and it's not specifically written in by the judge that it's because they're the non-moneyed spouse and it's in lieu of, you know, the, the, the moneyed spouse's obligations for support. And if the order doesn't say that, then you may not be able to recover. So you got to be careful about the wording. Okay, so if there are divorce attorneys that are negotiating these sorts of things and they know that a bankruptcy is on the horizon, that might be something they want to be careful about. Maybe consult with you about the, yeah. what the language should be. I, I would say even if you don't know a bankruptcy is on the horizon, just always get the language in there just in case. Yes. Now you were talking Good about advice. you were talking about four hundred one k's a minute ago. I just wanted to make sure that when you are using four hundred one k to talk about all retirement accounts, are just a four hundred one k. No, I thank you for that clarification. All retirement accounts. Okay, I just want to make sure. A Roth IRA, an yeah. IRA, a traditional IRA, um, 
what else? Pen- pension accounts. Pensions, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, anything. So, so, but if it's a if it's a regular stock or annuity, it's not going to be protected. Right. Mutual but if funds. It's in some, yeah, are, not not okay. going to be protected. But if it's anything in any kind of retirement account. It will be protected. So would, would people be required to liquidate mutual funds or stock? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then they would then potentially have tax consequences for that, right? Uh, yes. Okay. Um, you know. I know that one concern a lot of people have when they're talking about bankruptcy is whether they can keep the house. How does that usually play out? Well, so that's um, going back to my uh, earlier example. If somebody has too much equity in their house that they would run the risk of losing it in a Chapter 7, then we're going to immediately look at whether or not they would qualify for a Chapter 13. And in a Chapter 13, the trick is, you know, you have to have regular income um, that would support your ability to make plan payments. So if you're, you know, looking at you have $200,000 of equity in your house and you have $40,000 of credit card debt, um, if if the house was sold your credit card debt would be paid off in full. So in order to qualify for a 13, you're going to have to show that over the five years of your plan, you would be able to pay off that $40,000 of credit card debt in full because otherwise they would get paid in full if there was a liquidation. So that's always the, you know, you always have to do the liquidation analysis first. Now, on the flip side, let's say you only have $50,000 $50,000 of exposed equity on your house. But that that's enough, right, that you can't do a 13, uh, that you can't do a 7 because the trustee would sell the house. Um, and you have $150,000 of other debt. You're only, in that case, going to be looking at having to pay $50,000 over five years. So, you know, the balance, that extra $100,000 of debt would get forgiven at the end of your plan. Um, and that, of course, then you also have to look at the disposable monthly income analysis. If you're making $275,000 a year, you know, that's going to be out the window because your plan payment, your monthly payment is going to be higher based on your income. But we're talking about if you're just basing it on the amount of equity in your house first. So, so, so it sounds like people shouldn't just make assumptions about the house and whether they can keep it or, you know, how much of their debt they can discharge or not. They really should come and talk to someone like you so that there can be this more thorough analysis. You mean they shouldn't go on the Google machine and try to figure it out on their own? Well, there's so many misconceptions out there about bankruptcy. And I think people just who might be able to get some relief will just make assumptions and they won't and they'll just struggle with their financial difficulties when there actually is a solution for them. So I would encourage people not to just make those assumptions and don't rely on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so you've been talking about why you wouldn't want to do a Chapter 7 if, even if you qualify for one, if you have a lot of equity in your house. Is there any other reason if you didn't, if you didn't qualify for Chapter 7, you would not want to do that? You mean if you did qualify Uh, for a 7? If you you did qualify for a 7, is there any other reason you would not want to do a 7? Because it sounds better than a 13. You're getting rid of all the debt. Yeah, I mean, you know, other than the risk of losing your house, of course, there's is there a risk of losing any other asset that's really important to you? Um, you know, and I mean, there may be other reasons not to file a seven if you otherwise qualify. Like, you know, I mean, I I have, um, I have situations where clients have litigation, you know, and and they have. Uh, 
they they end up being in a situation where that litigation is just going to follow them into a seven and those litigation fees are just not going to go away. And I, I usually recommend that they see that litigation through to the end, at least get some kind of a judgment before filing. Um, what if somebody is involved in a personal injury claim where they, they're the plaintiff and they're hoping to get a big settlement? Right. What should they do strategically? So that's that's a that's a really, really great question. Um, if you have a personal injury claim or any other claim where you would have uh, the right to collect money from someone, then unless that that um, can be exempted, which there is there is a certain amount that can be exempted. So so you would be able to keep it. But if you're going to lose it to the Chapter 7 trustee, then you just have to weigh that out. Sometimes people are like, you know, I'm I'm tired of this litigation anyway. If the trustee gets money to pay my creditors, fine. Let it be his problem from now on. I don't want to deal with it anymore. You know, um, and then there's the inheritance issue and lottery winnings. These are very important too. Um, people are actually more likely to get a, an inheritance than a lottery winning, but they're treated the same. If you uh, get an inheritance within six months after filing your bankruptcy, that has to be disclosed, and that money can be um, required to be clawed back and used to pay your creditors. Uh, so if you're thinking that there is a you know, likelihood that you're going to have an inheritance soon, you may want to try, if possible, to wait that out and then, you know, collect your inheritance, use what you need to use to pay off your debts that way, because otherwise it's just going to be, you know, spending good money after bad because you're going to you're going to lose it to your creditors after the fact, after you've gone through the bankruptcy and paid for the process and everything else. Not to get in the weeds there, but okay, is it from six months from the date someone dies? Is it because sometimes someone dies and the estate doesn't get probated for six months to a year. So when does that six months run? I'm just curious. When you have the right to the inheritance within six months from filing your petition. Okay. Right? So it's when the person dies. So if the person dies four months after I file the petition, I technically have the right to my inheritance that at that on that date, on the date of death. That's well, how long does it take? I thought they from start to finish, it kind of gets wrapped up. Yeah, so it, it actually goes beyond the life of the normal Chapter 7 Oh, process, so even if you were done with the proceeding, I don't know the lingo, It was if the Chapter 7 was discharged yes. and you get the inheritance two months after that, you have to go back to court and say, oh, by the way, I just want you to know I, I just got this money. You have to do that? Yeah. 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 Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm sure wow. I, I can see there being lots of fraud going on in that arena. And so what happens if you don't? <laughs> I, think- I mean, are there eyes in the sky? Where, how do they know? So um, I guess maybe, <laughs> maybe <laughs> that's a closed door conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll be honest. I don't know how trustees do their due diligence on inheritance, um, but I know that people have gotten caught not reporting it. That's a so. very good answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, you know, I, I was talking to an attorney in another state. I won't say anyone's name. John will remember this conversation. And he does real estate litigation, so he does foreclosure litigation. And he we started talking about bankruptcy and he was really hard on bankruptcy attorneys. He he didn't have nice things to say about bankruptcy attorneys and he it was his feeling that a lot of people think that when they have a foreclosure problem that they just naturally go to a bankruptcy attorney and maybe that's not really what they need mm-hmm. but the bankruptcy attorney will not turn the business away and just say, oh, sure, I'll help you without really, in his opinion, you know, 
looking further into it to see if that's really what they need. Do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, I think that people should make sure that they go into their consult with their eyes open when they meet with their bankruptcy attorney. They should be as educated as possible to know the questions that they need to ask. Um, They should make sure that they get appropriate information um, because, you know, we have disclosures that we're required as bankruptcy attorneys to give to potential clients. Um, they're kind of like bankruptcy HIPAA forms, you know, these this information. Like consent that, forms. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, yeah. and the, those forms say, you know, we have given you certain information that helps you to make an educated decision about whether or not this process is in your best interest. Well, if somebody but, only has, let's say that they're just having trouble making their mortgage payments and they're behind, maybe they don't have other debt to speak of. Are, is someone like that a good candidate for a bankruptcy or would you send them to someone who does real estate litigation? It depends because if that person has tried to get a loan modification unsuccessfully, then they can go into a Chapter 13 or even a Chapter 7 in certain circumstances, but they can get a loan modification through their bankruptcy process with court supervision, with, uh, you know, the attorney helping them. Um, you know, I do that quite regularly for clients that don't have a lot of other debt but need to save their home, and we use it as a tool to save the home. I do also know that, you know, sometimes people have been given extremely bad advice. I had I had clients once that um, they were they were struggling. Um, the, the husband had been out of work for a while due to medical issues. And um, they they but they the one thing that they had done was they had kept current on their mortgage, but the mortgage payment was too high. So they wanted to get a loan modification. And because they didn't look further and do their research when what they really should have been doing was going to a different bank to look for a refi and get better terms from a different bank. They shouldn't have been looking at a loan modification at all. But this bankruptcy attorney that they went to before they met with me told them, you know, yeah, you know, we can get you a loan modification. You just need to miss a couple of payments so that you're in default and then we'll file a 13 and, you know, they'll have to they'll have to do, you know, a good faith loan modification with you. But it's with the same bank that's already given them terrible terms that they don't like dealing with. Right. And it created a default and it didn't work you know, to make matters worse. But that's a situation where they really should have been given guidance to a different process. They should have been looking for a refi, not a mod. So you can get that advice from a bank, if, if it's a good attorney who knows what they're doing and obviously feels like they have an obligation to give the best advice and not just what's going to make them money. Um, I, so as far as that other attorney, I think it's unfair to lump all bankruptcy attorneys into this one category. I think that's very unfair. Yeah, I think so too. Well, Karina, you're clearly great at what you do. So I'm wondering, how much do you get paid for all of this? (laughs) She's getting very rich. (laughs) (laughs) I I wish I was very rich. How much does it cost, the average bankruptcy? um, I mean, it depends on where you live. It depends on what kind of, you know, issues are in your bankruptcy, how complicated it's going to be. You know, um, I'll I'll, I'll put it this way. So in the state of New Jersey, we have what's called a no-look flat fee. Um, On a Chapter 7, the no-look flat fee is $2,500. On a Chapter 13, the no-look flat fee is $4,750. And what that means is the court has made a decision that that is a presumptively reasonable fee for the process. 
So it doesn't I mean, sound like it's that much. I mean, it doesn't sound like it's like a divorce certainly would cost you more. So is that to say that if if an attorney charged more than that, they would have to get the court's permission to charge more than that? Is that yeah? The, yeah. Um, in a sense, the the court would look at would scrutinize it more more heavily, right? So if there is if it is a case that warrants higher fees, they're going to let it pass. If it's not, then they're going to you know uh, give the attorney a hard time about collecting the fee. Well, how do how does someone pay that though? If they're coming to you for bankruptcy because they they're broke. How are they supposed to pay for that? Let me use all my maxed out credit cards. <laughs> well, yeah, and I know there's a problem. That's which we don't have to... <laughs> I know there's a problem with spending on your credit cards in anticipation of filing bankruptcy. Like, oh, let me go on one final shopping spree. <laughs> we don't have time to get into that. But how? what are the options? How do people pay you? So um, we do payment plans. Um, and if it's uh, a Chapter 13, the plans can actually... Sorry, the, the payments can actually be made through your Chapter 13 plan. So you, you make that along with your regular monthly payment and your process. Um, you know, it, and some people have relatives or friends that are like, hey, I want to help you out of this situation. And they'll loan them the money and then, you know, they'll they'll just repay them voluntarily. That it's it just it depends on the situation. I, I have people that are actually on payment plans that are like $100 a month just waiting to be ready to file. Oh, my. <laughs> because that's what they need to do, you know. Um, so you were t- earlier in the conversation, you were talking about stopping harassing phone calls. So when you file for bankruptcy, people are not supposed to – your creditors aren't supposed to be calling you anymore, right? Correct. So what happens if they do? Well, you can have um, – I mean, you, you can have a cause of action against them um, for either violating the bankruptcy automatic stay because when you file a bankruptcy, the automatic stay goes into place. What that means is that all collections actions of any kind must stop immediately. And if they don't, you can move for sanctions against them um, and they may have to pay your legal fees and et cetera. Best thing to do, I mean, is in most cases, a, you know, a phone call from my office and resending the petition is all we need to do and there's no sanctions involved. Sometimes people are just very thick-headed and, and they, they don't stop. Um, I actually had one client one time that was um, given very bad advice um, and, and he had um, he was a mechanic and he had done engine work and um, somebody told him, just don't give them back the car. <laughs> that's, that's that's an improper collections action, you know. So by the time we were done with it, um, we had to settle, you know, with him giving back the car and paying part of the debtor's legal fees and and stuff. And you know, he didn't even know that he was doing anything wrong. So we did get him a good deal. But um, you know, somebody told him just just don't 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 give back the car. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, and it was an attorney that told them that. Um, no, it was actually um, it was a finance company that he did business with that okay. he owed money to and was having trouble paying them, so they gave him the So fee. our final public service announcement today is don't take legal advice from anyone but a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Not from your hairstylist, your your broker, your financial guy, whoever yeah. they are. Yeah. So one last question, and we only have like 30 seconds for you to answer it, so it's going to be like fire. Um, if one spouse in a divorce files for bankruptcy, does the other spouse have to file for bankruptcy? No. And if they don't, what's going to happen to the one that didn't file? It depends. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll have to finish that on another episode. <laughs> How many 
time says Karina said it depends. Well, you know what? I would be worried if she didn't say it depends because then that means it would be an easy pro- a really easy process. Yeah, there's there, there's usually no quick yes or no absolute answer to anything. No. So the moral of this conversation is if you have a bankruptcy issue or you're struggling paying your debt, you have any issues in that regard, you need to go speak to a bankruptcy attorney like Karina who knows what they're doing and after this conversation clearly you should know that Karina knows what she's doing. If you like Thanks, to call Karina Lucid, you can call her at 908-738-8277 and um, she can help you hopefully out of a really she bad She can help situation. you get out of debt. Yeah, and actually, or get they, out of town. <laughs> if if they want to call my office and ask for a copy of my book, Bankruptcy: A Fresh Start, it has a lot of these tidbits in it that help people feel a little bit more comfortable about what's going on in their life and less alone. Excellent book. It's on my shelf. Thank you. All right, take care. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Thank you.